Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Dr. James Cocaine, Head of Secretariat for Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, or FAST. James and I talk about the year-old FAST initiative that grew out of the United Nations effort to enlist the financial community in the fight against human trafficking. James has spoken at ACAMS conferences, and ACAMS is proud to have partnered with FAST to provide free ACAMS Fighting Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking certification for anti-financial crime professionals and others. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it is my pleasure to have James Cocaine, Head of Secretariat for Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, to talk today about FAST, which is the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Initiative. James, good evening. You're in Australia. I'm in New York. Good evening. Yeah. Hi, Kieran. Great to be with you. So let's just start out very basic for those that may not be aware. What's FAST? Yeah, so this started as some work that we were doing at the think tank, the UNU Center for Policy Research, with the government of Liechtenstein and their permanent mission to the UN in New York, working really on the role of the international criminal law system fighting human trafficking. So thinking about things like international investigations and cooperation, and that drew us into the financial crimes compliance space where I and some of the people we were working with have a background. But as we talked to the banks and some of the other financial institutions, it became clear that there are actually three different conversations that were relevant to the financial sector that we wanted to join up. One is the financial crimes compliance discussion, modern slavery, human trafficking are crimes. So the money that is made through them is proceeds of crime subject to all of the normal anti-money laundering rules, counter-terrorist financing rules when it connects to terrorism and so on. Another, though, is really more on the investment side of those businesses, where they're thinking about whether to invest or indeed, to some extent, whether to lend to businesses that maybe have modern slavery or labor trafficking risks deep in their supply chain. There's a growing need in the ESG space, as it's called, to think about these risks, both from a compliance perspective, but also from an investment management perspective. That means funding businesses that, put it bluntly, enabling or using trafficked labor or whatever, right? That's right. But because modern slavery and human trafficking are so widespread, 40 million people in the world, one in every 185, according to the International Labor Organization, experienced modern slavery in 2016. That means that actually many businesses around the world may be relying somewhere deep in their supply chain on a business that has ties to forced labor. And that's true from everything from nail salons to large infrastructure projects to agriculture. We know, for example, a lot of seafood that goes into pet food in Western supermarkets is unfortunately caught with forced labor in Southeast Asian waters. So it's a pretty ubiquitous problem. And if you're a big investor with a very diversified portfolio, maybe you're just investing, for example, in an indexed fund or, or something like that, then you may well have some kind of exposure to these risks without realizing it. And then a, a third area is really around financial inclusion. People who are already vulnerable to trafficking become more vulnerable if they can't get access to banking services, to credit, and they have to sell their labor in dangerous ways to make ends meet. 
So these three conversations needed to be joined up and we worked with those governments that I mentioned, uh, Muhammad Yunus, the microfinance pioneer and others, to form a, a commission that met for a year, 25 leaders from the finance sector and from the anti-trafficking sector, including two amazing survivors who've both worked with the financial sector on these issues, to think for a year about what the financial sector can do to address these problems. And they published a report about a year ago now called The Fast Blueprint, the blueprint for mobilizing finance against slavery and trafficking. I know there's the blueprint and there's also a toolkit. And I guess maybe it's helpful to talk very practically about how those things are intended to engage the financial services industry, for instance, and others, right? I mean, this is an initiative that brings together NGOs as well as governments and the private sector. But what are you asking the finance industry to do? The key point I think here, Kieran, is to ask financial sector actors to pay more attention to modern slavery and human trafficking risks where they already arise uh, in their existing business. We're not looking for change of business models or to ask businesses to do anything outside their existing lines of practice. It's more about asking them to use the tools at their disposal to identify, tackle and address these risks. So for example, the toolkit that we offer includes a portfolio screening tool that helps them think about where they may have greatest risk exposure to these concerns. It includes uh, a compendium of red flags and indicators of what financial footprints of human trafficking might look like in transactions and in banking relationships. Increasingly, we're working directly with financial sector actors to get them to take the lead in developing these solutions. So we'll shortly be announcing a group of institutional investors in Asia Pacific with about $2 trillion US dollars under management that will be working together and with their clients, the companies that they invest in, to find modern slavery risks in the supply chains and value chains of those companies and address them, tackle them together. So what we're saying is, you know, you're asking financial institutions, business to look at how they may be dealing with the proceeds of crime, to think about their investments and how they may be participating in some way in human trafficking. And then there's this financial inclusion point, and it may be how they may help bring into the system victims of trafficking. Yeah, that's it. There are two ways, I think, of thinking about this that make sense to do different actors in the financial sector. So from the bank's perspective, human trafficking is like other forms of trafficking. It's an organized crime. The proceeds that come from that are potentially unwittingly laundered through their systems. They need to take due care and undertake their statutory reporting obligations. What we see there is where regulators ask reporting entities to pay particular attention to human trafficking. So for example, if they put a checkbox on suspicious transaction report forms asking, have you seen human trafficking here? Then the reporting of the crime goes up about 900 to 1000%. So it's already out there. It's just a question of organizing the system so that we're paying attention to that particular risk. Then from the investor's perspective, a different way of thinking about this is a little bit more like climate risk, that what we have here is an externality created for society, for the economy as a whole, that puts a drag on the economy as a whole, because individual business incentives align in a way to get them to reduce labor costs 
and that makes people vulnerable, unfortunately, to trafficking. So what we're doing is asking the system in the same way we're asking the system, the investment system, the capital markets to think about how to better price in that externality into investment decision-making with climate risk. We're just asking them to do the same thing, modern slavery and human trafficking risk. So I think one of the things that's really important about FAST is this insistence, This it's a key component, it's not even like an insistence. The survivors have been involved in the discussion about creating FAST and survivors are involved in an ongoing way. Talk about that as a value and the benefits and the importance of that. Ultimately, this is driven as much by a pragmatic imperative, Kieran, as it is by a moral imperative. And what I mean by that is these people are the experts, pure and simple, in what this risk is about. And so if you're a bank trying to understand, am I actually seeing human trafficking risk in my portfolio? Are there proceeds of crime that are linked to these kinds of crimes coming through my payment systems, for example? Someone who's actually been through that experience is going to have a much more granular sense of what that's actually going to look like. They may not be an expert in banking systems, payment systems, but through partnership, we've seen in a number of jurisdictions, for example, in Canada, the the fantastic project Protect, that partnerships between banks and survivors and regulators can allow all of them to learn what that actually looks like and to take more effective action against these risks. So we certainly see a moral imperative that we don't want to allow these people's suffering to be perpetuated in any way by the financial system, but it's as much a pragmatic imperative as a moral one. So at FAST, as as you rightly pointed out, we include survivors at every level in all of our work, all of our outreach. uh, There's survivors every level of our team up to our governance level, helping us gain these benefits of working with them from day one. So one of the other big things that FAST emphasizes with regards to the victims of trafficking is financial inclusion and getting them back in the financial system. The recidivism rate in sex trafficking often has something to do with someone not being able to survive once they've gotten free of a trafficker. Yeah, we're really proud of what banks are achieving here with a little bit of a nudge and support from FAST. One of the things we learned through the Financial Sector Commission was that pretty much worldwide there's a a common pattern. The money laundering system is, of course, designed to pick up indicators of crime. And so if a survivor manages to escape the situation of exploitation, begins to get back on his or her feet, gets a job maybe, and then goes to open a bank account, it's really not unusual that a, a flag pops up around that person's name because they were involved in a court case or they appear in some other way in the system. And one of the reasons is that increasingly traffickers exploit not just people's bodies and labor, they deliberately exploit their financial identity. So they recognize that the financial identity of their victim is itself a valuable asset and they'll use their financial identity for laundering, but also for other financial frauds. There's a growing instance right now of COVID payment related fraud using people who've been trafficked by their traffickers. So someone is trying to get back on their feet, they come to the bank and they can't open a bank account because of these terrible things that have happened in the past. So we've been working with about a dozen banks in the United States, UK, Canada, and further abroad, big banks, very well-named brands, to work with them, to allow them to 
ensure that their systems are not creating these, I guess you might say, false positives, but actually working directly with survivors and specialist survivor support organizations to integrate these people back into the formal financial system. And that's really important for exactly the reason you said, Kieran, which is that once they're back in the system, they're a bit safer, they're more able to integrate into the economy and society, and they're not forced to rely on informal banking, informal debt arrangements, which put them you know, much closer to harm's way and to sliding back into the terrible situation that they've just managed to escape from. My next question, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking, what are some of the successes that you can point to for FAST? It's been a year. There are clearly some people out there who have been brought into the financial system who were uh, outside it as a result of FAST. What are some of the other successes that you're seeing so far in, over this past year since FAST has been launched? We're definitely very proud of that survivor inclusion initiative we just talked about. We've seen banks extend uh, financial coverage to over 700 survivors in that time. We're very proud of this new initiative that will be launched shortly with institutional investors with over $2 trillion US dollars under management working with their clients to address these risks. We've also been doing a lot of work with governments and we've made Asia Pacific a big focus in part because that's the region which has the highest per capita prevalence of modern slavery, it's believed, in the world. We work closely with the Australian government and the other 40 or so other governments involved in the Bali process. And we held a consultation with Asia Pacific governments and financial sector actors last week to learn what's already going on in the region. And it's actually really impressive some of the things that are being done. We heard some amazing work that's being done by the Thai Pension Fund and the Thai Stock Exchange, for example, to get companies that are listed on the Thai Stock Exchange to disclose these and other related social risks when they're listing and also once they're listed. We are also really excited about the work we have ahead. One of the things I'm particularly looking forward to is digging in on this question that you pointed to of financial inclusion. So we know that people who don't have access to reliable, safe banking services are more vulnerable to trafficking. So that actually means there's a very interesting business opportunity here, that if we find cost-effective ways to extend the addressable market to those people to offer them safe, reliable financial services, and these can be quite simple credit insurance type services, that's actually going to be reducing their vulnerability to trafficking. And if we can show that on a measurable scale, then we start getting into the territory of being able to build sustainability bonds, sustainable finance, sustainability-linked finance uh, in ways that are potentially going to allow us to take this action to scale. To do that, though, we really need to get a handle on understanding exactly where these risks are. And that's where groups like the financial crimes compliance community really come in because they are at the forefront of the, the data analysis that's going to allow us to get a better handle on exactly where is modern slavery occurring at the work site, the factory level. That's the kind of level of granularity that businesses need to factor these risks into their decision making. And there I'm especially happy. One of the things we're most proud about is our collaboration between FAST and ACAMS, actually. We launched together, as you know, Kieran, a training course online just a few months ago now, about four or five months ago, uh, an introduction to all of these ideas and what you can do practically. And we've just been blown away by the response. There's over 4,000 people have signed up for that course in just a few months. Not an obvious area necessarily for people to be getting involved with, but 
People from over 130 countries have already taken that course and not necessarily the usual suspect countries that you might think about from all over the world and especially excited about all of the people who've taken it from Asia Pacific. So we're really looking forward to seeing that group grow even further. We're pretty excited about that certification too, and it's still possible to go online and sign up for that and get free training and something that is really important for people to be aware of. There really has been a mobilization of the private sector, the government and NGOs, etc. You know, you mentioned Project Protect. I think there's the Mekong Club out there. Can you talk about some of how you interact with some of these initiatives and what they bring to the table? Absolutely. Our job as FAST is to mobilize people. So we're not going to be solving anything directly ourselves. We're not going to be rescuing anybody from trafficking ourselves. It's all about us helping people find their way to this problem and then helping them find the solutions that are going to work for them. So we're very keen to find effective organizations like the ones you just mentioned and and others that are out there uh, that are working to build those solutions. We find that those solutions are much more likely to take root and to be embedded in business if they're developed by business themselves. The same goes for government. We're looking to government here to make sure that the regulatory systems, the way that they run their anti-money laundering regime, for example, is allowing business to operate in a way that's going to reduce modern slavery risks as far as possible. It's much more likely that government will do that if government is coming up with the solutions for their regulatory regime rather than being told by an external actor what to do. So we're all about working with those uh, different actors. We really encourage that kind of partnership approach that you're pointing to, Kieran. In the new year, we'll be developing a series of work streams in different areas, one for investment, one for banking, one for the market regulation stream, where if folks are interested in being a part of that conversation moving forward and, and working with us to develop solutions, or indeed just to promote their own solutions if they have effective solutions, we're all ears. We'd love to hear from anybody around the world that's keen to reach out to us at fastinitiative.org. And I just want to also maybe as an inspiration to folks out there that will listen to this, that something like Project Protect, which followed an address by Tamiya Nagy, who is, uh, I know someone who's been active with FAST and one of those survivors that you have relied on in this process, that it came following the speech that she gave at an ACAMS conference in Toronto that folks from the large financial institutions, some of them with law enforcement backgrounds said, how can we come together and share information to put a stop to trafficking? So that was sort of a commercial for a concept. If people are listening and wherever they are, there are ways in which they can mobilize against uh, human trafficking. You mentioned COVID-19. Briefly, are there some neural challenges that are coming out of the pandemic that people should be aware of? and how are you addressing them? COVID-19 is, is a massive challenge in this area. It boils down to pretty simple concept, which is that everybody's income is either being reduced or is at risk or nearly everybody in the world, particularly in developing countries. So people are going to be under a lot more pressure financially 
and they're going to have to be creative or maybe even take on more risk in the way they sell their labor or maybe they undertake domestic or even in the future international migrations that are risky. That's going to put them in harm's way. So all of the signs, unfortunately, there's increased incidence of different types of modern slavery and human trafficking across the board. We have some really solid evidence emerging that unfortunately the big gains that we've seen on child labor in the last 20 years are beginning to be thrown into reverse. And we're also seeing new business models emerge. All of us have had our lives go suddenly even more online than they were. Well, traffickers are adapting to that, I'm afraid to say as well. So we're seeing big spikes in many different countries of online sexual exploitation and very sadly, in particular, spikes in online sexual exploitation of children. This has clear ties to the work that ACAMS does in the financial crimes compliance community. In Australia, the biggest fine for any company ever in our history has just been handed down against one of the big four banks because of money laundering violations or allegations of violations, some of which were connected to online sexual exploitation of children. So this is not just a marginal issue. This is beginning to be an issue with real material implications for financial institutions. The CEO of that bank stepped down very quickly after these allegations came to light. The share price took a hit. This is something really important and COVID unfortunately is really just gonna magnify the risks to people and the risks to business themselves. Is there anything final message that people out there, a lot of our, not all of our listeners, but a lot of the listeners will be people who are in compliance at financial institutions or in law enforcement. Any sort of final thing you'd like to say? I think I'd actually like to finish, Kieran, with that point you made about the incident, I guess you'd call it, where Timea, who you mentioned, is an amazing, powerful leader in this field, stood up and said to a room of financial crimes compliance specialists, what are you going to do about this? And some leaders from the community stood up there and then and said, we're going to work with you and we're going to begin to figure out how to tackle this problem. Everybody has a something they can do to begin to address this in their daily business. So that's, I guess, where I'd like to leave it really with a little bit of a prod or a challenge to your listeners. Go away and have a think. Where is this risk showing up in your day-to-day work? Is there something you can do potentially to begin to tackle this problem? And if you're not sure, feel free to reach out to us and, and we'd be happy to work with you to figure out an answer to that. We're only going to be able to end this problem if we all work together. No one's suggesting the financial sector can end this or should end this on their own, but it's pretty clear it's a crime driven by profit, so we won't be able to end it without the involvement of the financial sector. Well, James, what a pleasure to talk to you about this crucial topic. James Cocaine, Head of Secretariat for Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, FAST. Thank you so much, James. Pleasure. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. James Cocaine, Head of Secretariat for FAST. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you will receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.